click something. I should just bring that up there so I can click something. When it's not working. So uh, I don't have anything to distract you. So uh, if I see you nodding off, I'll just wave my sermon notes around that to keep you awake. Uh, I think a, a page got left over in the printer. So uh, at least I, I know I'll stay awake because I was up till about 2 in the morning doing my PowerPoint for this morning. <laughs> so I'm tired anyway. So this will help me. As we try to know Christ a little bit better this uh, this year, uh, we've gone through a bunch of names, and we, we started with a, a bunch of names that that had to do with his intrinsic uh, nature. We talked about him being that I am and the Logos and some of those really profound concepts. Um, however, most of his titles, I think as you go through and we, we look at uh, what we've talked about, most of his titles have to do with the things that he does. Uh, you know, uh, some of them that we haven't gotten to talk about being a savior, a redeemer, a, a creator. They all refer to, to things that he does. We're going to this month kind of shift gears a little bit and, and, and talk about some different types of titles that he has that, that, um, that have a, something in common. Um, and that is that, that some job descriptions uh, imply a relationship to other people. And, and, you, and work is like, you know, most, most of your job titles, much like in the Bible, most of the job titles you have, I could kind of guess at least something that you do uh, based on, you know, if you're an engineer, I can figure out a little bit of what you do. Because it's in your job title. That's the purpose for a job title. Some job titles imply a necessary relationship with other people. For example, uh, if you are in customer support, I kind of know what you do. Uh, not just what you do, but I know that it is connected to people. So I know that, that you sit around all day and say things like, is it plugged in? Or did you try turning it off and on again? Right? That's, that's pretty much what you do if you are in customer support. Uh, or you might be a sales representative. Again, I necessarily infer from that that if you're in sales and you're meeting with somebody and you are trying to make them dissatisfied with something that they are currently happy with. Right? Like, for example, you know, I never thought about it, but I cannot cut this penny with my kitchen scissors. <laughs> so apparently there's an epidemic of people sitting around their kitchens trying to cut pennies. That's what we need more of in this world is people trying to cut pennies in their kitchen. So we need those kitchen scissors that cut pennies. But I know from being a sales rep that that's kind of what you do. Right? Because there's this necessary relationship that your job requires for you to have with people. Some of you seek job descriptions and job titles so that you do not have to deal with people. Right? But Christ has built into his job description some titles that imply a connection to other people. And Christ reveals to us through, through some of these things, his relationship to us. This whole thing has been uh, talking about how we can have a deeper relationship with Christ, how we can come to know Christ better. Not just know more about him, but to know him and have a relationship. But in some of these, it is necessary for us to understand the relationship. And we're going to actually... Go back to an old sermon. I'm not going to re-preach it, but there's a concept within a message that we've already talked about. And so we go back to Romans 
Romans chapter 8 and verse 28 and 29. He says, We know that all things work together for good to those who love God and who are called according to His purpose. For those who He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, that He might be the firstborn among many brethren. We've talked about Him being the firstborn. We're not going to talk about Him being the firstborn again. But... Uh, there is something of value in here that we're going to switch over uh, to a different topic. And that is to, to say that someone is the firstborn is to imply that there are others. He is the firstborn. And so we're going to look at this aspect of Christ today as our brother. To know Christ as our brother. Well, first you would, as we talked about, know about your brother. You say, that kind of sounds dumb. To know more about your brother? I know a lot about my brother. Why do I need to know more about my brother? I already know about my brother. There's an interesting story I came across uh, as I was preparing for this sermon. In, in 2017, a young man in Georgia by the name of Kyron Grant, some of you might have seen this on USA Today if you, if you watched that, or Good Morning America, or whichever, or, yeah, Good Morning America, one of those morning shows, I don't, I don't know any of the names of them. So, uh, but uh, a young man by the name of Kyron Graham went in search of his biological family. He was a, a, a young African-American man, great, raised in a white family, so he was clued into the fact that he was adopted. And uh, so he wanted to find his, he wanted to find his biological family. They had told him about a brother he had. Uh, he was not adopted as an infant. He was adopted a little bit older. They, they knew the family a little bit. They, they didn't have any connection to them, but they knew some of the facts of the family. So he, he knew about it. And so he went and did one of these DNA tests and hopes that someone else some out there had, had done one of these tests themselves. In fact, I think he knew the, the first name, but he didn't know the last name. He didn't know how to, how to find him. Uh, and fortunately, uh, one of... Uh, one of the names came up as soon as they did the DNA test. They said, "We have a name for you." And uh, so, Kyron Graham uh, found his brother. Now, at the time, Kyron Graham was attending college at Kennesaw State in Georgia. He did not have to go far to find his brother. Nine years older, they were both attending the same college, um, and so he met very quickly his brother, uh, Vincent Grant. Right. Vincent was attending Kennesaw State. They were both majoring in political science, and they were both minoring in legal studies. Kinda, a cool story, uh, really. And he, he had to go not very far to find his brother. Who knows if they had passed each other and not recognized each other in the halls uh, or on campus walking across. You know, we don't have to go that far to find our brother. This DNA study, interestingly enough, also revealed that they were related to the king of Porto Novo, which is the capital of Benin, Africa. So they had some royal blood in them. It's kind of cool. A lot of interesting information uh, that, that those DNA tests show you. And in this text, we find that we are related to Christ. And this, this relationship to Christ 
gives us a relationship to royalty. We find out that we are genetically connected. Hebrews chapter 2. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, uh, tells us a, a similar story. We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Interesting, interesting verse has actually got two titles. One we're going to come back to uh, a little bit later in the year. But but this idea of, of bringing many sons to glory. That Christ was the firstborn. He was the preeminent one. And it was through his death that we get this genetic relationship to the Father. We, we get this DNA print on us. He was the representation of the Father. And he comes to, to be our brother, to, to be this, this connection. Two things that, that were not compatible. And Christ says, I can be the catalyst to make these things come together. And so that's the one connection. The first connection that is obvious is that we get this connection to the Father. The second thing though, as we learn about what our brother has done, he says that uh, we refer to here in verse 10 he says he has brought many sons to glory you are one of many sons in the 1700s in Russia there's a man by the name of Fyodor Vasilyev uh, who had 87 children and I know what you're thinking but I know some of the things you're thinking, actually. <laughs> Interestingly enough, uh, his first wife um, had 69 children. Lots of twins and triplets in there. All but two survived. In, uh, or, yeah, all but two survived their infancy. Which is incredible for that time. She passed away and he married another woman. She had a mere... 18. All but three survived infancy. A large family. He was a peasant. I'm not sure how he paid for all that. Um, Large family. And it pales in comparison to what Christ has done. Christ in, in coming here has brought myriads of sons to the family. He has brought many sons to glory. Colossians refers to us as the church of the firstborn. And we just kind of say that. That means assembly. Or called out. But it was used for a general assembly. Like we have today, an assembly. Uh, most of their assemblies would be in a public 
square, they would go for some political reason or, or whatever, and they would gather and have a vote for something or whatever. That was what they referred to as a called-out assembly. Think of a family so large that you have to have an assembly. And we're going to have an assembly of our family. Right? Family reunions, you do that. We are called an assembly, and yet we are a family. And that is a large family. So, we know about our brother. We know about what he's done as a member of the family, as the, the preeminent one. But we don't want to stop at knowing some of the things that a, a brother has done. We continue on in Hebrews chapter 2 and learn more about this brother that, that allows us to develop a close relationship with, with Christ. He says, For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all one. For this reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers or brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. Now here in this verse he's talking to God. He says, I will not. I'm not ashamed to declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, the family, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children that God has given me. So then, insofar as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself has shared in the same that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death that is the devil, and release those who, because of their fear, were subject to bondage their entire lives. We've all had a time where a family member embarrassed us. Right? You think of a time. Sometimes you look back and you think of times, that was probably embarrassing, something I did. I didn't really realize it at the time. But more more often than not, you realize and remember the, the moments in which a family member, a parent, uh, sometimes deliberately embarrassed you. That's not what he is talking about here when he says he's not ashamed to call them brethren. He's not talking about a mild embarrassment. One of the most common types of shame or family shame is, is when a, a family member has committed a crime, even a serious crime, and they get incarcerated and, and innocent family members suffer as a result of that. Oh, your dad's this, sir. Your brother's this. Right? And, and they, the family feels the same through no fault of their own. There's a stigma attached to the entire family. That's the idea that's talking about here in Christ is, I have no shame. I am not ashamed to call these people my brothers. Think of the things that you've done, thought, said in your life that would cause someone shame. And Christ is not ashamed. I'm not ashamed of them. I don't hesitate to go right in the middle of the assembly and have a connection in the presence of God Almighty. I will sing Christ's praise right along with them. 
that is an incredible statement about Christ that, that he does not feel the shame. How can Christ not be ashamed of me? Because he suffered. That's what it says. Because he suffered and because he knows the situation I live in. It's not that he sinned, but it's the fact that he came here and he lived the life and felt the temptations. And he knows how difficult those temptations are and how difficult the trials are. He knows what it's like. He is the carpenter's son. He knows what it's like to hit his hand with a hammer. He knows what that's like. He, he knows all the things that drive you crazy and make you want to do whatever. And he grew up in a, in a home with a mother who conceived a child by God. I'm sure that didn't I'm sure that didn't make any rumors in the, in the neighborhood. He knows shame. But more importantly than that, he suffered to get rid of the shame. And so he says, I know how to put the shame behind me. I know how to put the shame behind you. Our past is gone. And Christ gives us this position in the family. A new family. And he sings the Father's praise with us. In introducing us to this wonderful family. And so our response to this, because as we said, there are these titles... You, we go through them and we like the titles of Christ. But some of the titles that we're talking about this month specifically imply a connection to us and they require a response. Because in a family, you know, as I say, you can choose your friends, you can't choose your family. We're in the family. You want a connection to God? We're in family. And this is who it is. Romans chapter 8, verse 17. It says, if we are children, then we are heirs. Heirs of God, and we are joint heirs together with Him. If indeed, we suffer with Him so that we can be glorified together. We like to glorify together part. We like the joint heirs part. But that first thing says children. We are children. We are all heirs. And again, there's this necessary implication. And there's one little part that we might like to get rid of in this verse. It would be a lot more pleasant verse if it didn't have that phrase, if indeed we suffer with him. And so in one word, our response, to Christ as a brother is to suffer. Because that's the, the root of Christ's brotherhood with us. The root of all of this that makes us a brother is that Christ, as we read in Hebrews, Christ suffered. That's what he did to bring us into a family. Well, that's what brothers do. 
we suck for each other. That sounds kind of negative. I have a brother, and I can tell you honestly that my brother suffered. My, I got him in trouble so many times. Um, and he always complained to my mom. He always complained. He says, Mom, you see what I do back to him? You don't see what he starts. So she says, I started him. She's like, no, there's no way. He's only a little kid. He doesn't do all that. You're, you're, old, you're five years old. And stop blaming everything on your younger brother. She, but after he said that, she started watching. She's like, Tommy's right. He started everything. Right. So my, my older brother suffered. But uh, when the neighborhood bully, Frankie, beat me up, guess who went out hunting Frankie? My brother. Christ suffered for a, a relationship with us. To be a brother is to suffer. But we are brothers too. It is not a one-way street. We are brothers of Christ and we are brothers of other people. Matthew chapter 8 has this to say. Beginning in verse 34. Excuse me, Mark. Mark 8. Verse 34 begins, he says, When he called the people to himself, his disciples were there also. He said to them, Whoever desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what profit does a man have to gain the whole world and loses his own soul? We referred to this last week. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... In him, the Son of Man, will also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. And so, the first concept of suffering that we want to talk about, only two, the first concept of suffering is that we suffer to bring brothers. Christ suffered to bring brothers. And he says, okay, you're a brother. Guess what brothers do? Brothers suffer to bring brothers. I did it. And it is your turn. Christ recognizes that there's consequences in associating with him. He says, deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. I was the brother first. I was the first brother. I was the preeminent one. I've suffered more than you because I'm the first one. Benjamin is not here, so I get to. Benjamin enjoyed being the younger brother for the first time we, we were hosting Akali and he had never been a younger brother he kind of enjoyed annoying somebody else for the first time I've never done that before I've always had the younger siblings to annoy me this is great he enjoyed that got a lot of mileage out of that Akali was the younger sibling She'd never had the experience of being annoyed by someone younger. She does have a younger brother, but he's kind of cute, so 
They got to experience something new, right? So, so God says, Christ says, I am the older brother. I have suffered for you a long time and more than you could ever imagine. So now it's your turn to do some suffering for the sake of bringing some other people. And the degree of suffering isn't really to be compared. What we really feel is mild embarrassment. What do you think about it? Well, in, in, in reaching out to a world around us, what do we hear? Now, if I preach this sermon in a different country, it might be a different sermon. Because in a different country, they frequently suffer serious consequences. But we hear don't suffer serious consequences. What we suffer is mild embarrassment compared to Christ. Christ says, can you be mildly embarrassed for me? Because if you're going to be ashamed of me, well, then I will feel shame for you. That's the one thing that you can, you can cause Christ to be ashamed Christ says, I'm not ashamed to call him brother, but I can make him ashamed if I am ashamed of him. That's the one thing I can do. Have you ever poured your energy into someone and been disappointed by the return you got? Christ says, it's in there. We, we referred to Matthew chapter 14 last, year, uh, last week and, and, and the feeding of the 5,000 people. The whole hillside of people. Well, read the next chapter. Christ did it again. He came back for more. A whole hillside of people listened to him. And we read John 6 version of that story and we see that they all got disappointed with him and left because he wouldn't keep on. He wouldn't do another miracle. Well, at another point in time, he did do it. Again. Christ came back. Christ continued to pour his energy and passion into a people who were largely unresponsive. We pour our energy or passion into a single person or two people and we're, uh, I'm done. That's it. Suffer. Suffer to bring brothers. When you feel like you've given too much and you don't want to give anymore, because you're not seeing the return, Christ says, that's the time to give more. That's the time to do it, because you don't know when that person will be responsive. So suffer to bring brothers to the last one. I'm going to read First John chapter 3 and verse 16. First John. And again, you might think, well, this is kind of over the top, but just just hang with me a little bit. <clears throat> First John, in chapter 3, in verse 16, it says, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. Again, a little dramatic. I'm not asking to go out this afternoon and find someone and die for them. That's not the world we live in not likely to find that situation right now. But that's not necessarily all that laying down your life implies. 
We suffer to bring brothers. But we suffer to keep brothers. Both are necessary. He says, you lay down your life for the brethren. Not just lay down your life, not just suffer for, for people to, to, to bring people to Christ, but to suffer to keep people in Christ. And while it sounds a little melodramatic, given our culture, there are things that we can look at that say, well, that constitutes laying down your life. What does your life consist of? It consists of the things you do. It consists of your priorities. It consists of your time. It consists of your money. It consists of your decisions. It consists of your entertainment. What is your life? And a close family says, the things that compose my life from one moment to the next are not important to the degree that a brother is important. What in your life would you not lay down for a brother if it meant keeping him a brother? Well, there's this list of things. But that implies that we're not really that close as a family. Maybe, maybe what it means and what this implies is that we need to be closer as a family so that wouldn't be a tough decision. Maybe that's what that implies. How do I begin doing this? How, I don't. I don't even know what this means. Or how, how. Maybe we know people more around us, right here. Maybe we get more connected because I know that among us are things that we are all weak in, and we sometimes get caught up in my rights. These are my rights. I have these rights. And this is my right to have this in my life, and this in my life, and this in my life. And there are people among us that struggle with things. And sometimes our rights and our life is not laid down. Paul wrote about that. He said, for the sake of your, your weaker brother, your rights, you won't lay those down. You will cause their destruction for the sake of your rights. For the sake of your life. So God calls on us to lay down the elements of my life that would keep some barrier between them, other brothers, and God. How do I begin? A lot of times we don't even know the things that our brothers are struggling with. A lot of times we don't even know. And why don't we know? Because we're not really close families. We're kind of out there and maybe we need to do a little DNA test and see who we're connected to. Are we connected? How connected am I to the people in this room? Really? Maybe it's 
Get out the app and scrolling down and start and find people you don't know and get connected to them. You do not need my permission to get closer to each other. We don't need each other's permission. Giving up your life, it means more than physically dying. A lot of times we just we speak in such vague things that, that we're left without a... Hear a sermon and we're left without anything to do in my life. I'm like, okay, that was a wonderful sermon, but I have no idea what it means. I don't know what to do when I walk out that door. But it entertains me for about a half an hour. There is an opportunity. There is always an opportunity. To check, this is the challenge this week. Do a little DNA test. See who you're connected to. See who are the long lost brothers in this group. And see who we need to get closer to. That's one. And two is to to look around at people that you meet on a daily basis and to view them as people who could be a part of the family. What family are they a part of? And what family can they be a part of? And do a DNA test and connect. Suffer. Be willing to suffer for people out there and people in here, bring brothers in and keep brothers.